Have you ever had the experience of taking a hit because you decided to obey God? You decided to take the path of faithfulness. You decided to honor the word of the Lord in your life, and that brought blowback. Kids, maybe it was a time in which you knew that telling the truth was going to get you into trouble, but you were convinced in your own heart and mind that you needed to tell the truth regardless. Adults, maybe it was an incident in the workplace. You knew that doing the right thing was going to cost you something. Being a person of integrity, making choices that honor God, was going to cause some setback in your life. Perhaps it was a relational issue. You knew that in some circumstance, in some relationship, you needed to take the opportunity to speak the truth in love. And you were worried that that might cause fallout, that might put distance between you and the person, but you needed to make the choice to do what's right. Name the circumstance. It's a regular occurrence in our lives. And I find personally that it is especially difficult to trust God in times like these. I wonder if you feel the same way. It's easy to assume that the path of obedience shouldn't have any speed bumps, right? Walking in God's ways should lead to carefree, smooth sailing. Yet often what we experience in this sin-cursed world is that the path of obedience is actually marked by opposition. When you do right, you take a hit, sometimes a significant hit. You would think it should work the other way around. I mean, this is my father's world after all. So the question for us to consider tonight is, what should we do in times like these? What do we do when God asks us to make bricks without straw? Please turn to Exodus chapter 5 this morning. We enjoy another day in the Old Testament today. I think the last time that Jacob and I preached on the same Sunday, we both chose Old Testament passages. And ironically, the themes of our passages are related. I think we should start wearing matching clothing. Maybe I'll shave my head. That would be very appropriate. Please follow along in Exodus chapter 5. Let me briefly set the context. We pick up the story after Moses' commission and Aaron, his brother, joins him. God promises them that he is going to use them to set his people free from their burdens. In Egypt, he is going to set them free from their oppression and their affliction and the evil ruler, Pharaoh. God's people were crushed under the weight of their slavery and their burdens, and they had cried out to the Lord. And the text of Exodus has emphasized up to this point that the Lord knew, that the Lord heard their plea for mercy, and he was about to act decisively on their behalf. Uh, You know that initially Moses is reluctant. He doesn't think that he should be the spokesperson for God, and that's part of the reason why God sends Aaron along with him to be uh, the spokesperson to the people, and Moses will mediate the word of the Lord to and then through Aaron. And really, if we're keeping the broader scope of redemptive history in mind, um, this is God advancing his plan of redemption for mankind. And this is actually a scenario in which the offspring of the serpent is striking out against the offspring of the woman. God had promised when sin entered the world and the world was cursed through sin and death came upon mankind that one day he would send the seed of the woman 
who would crush the head of the serpent. But there would be opposition along the way. The serpent would strike back at the heel of the seed of the woman. And this is indeed what happens. Pharaoh is oppressing the offspring of the woman. So he stands in the place of the serpent, striking out against God's good purposes. We know from the book of Genesis that God will bring about his worldwide plan of redemption through his chosen servant, Abraham. That anyone who blesses Abraham will be blessed by the one true God, and anyone who curses Abraham will be cursed. So we should expect a certain outcome as we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your, day, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. 
So this test case gives us some simple lessons for handling opposition as we faithfully follow the Lord. Remember, the question is, what do we do when God asks us to make bricks without straw? Here are a few simple lessons. And the first that covers the first four verses is this. Follow instructions carefully. Follow your marching orders from the Lord. Pay careful attention to his word when obedience brings you into times of opposition. I think the first thing we see in the passage, which is a bit subtle and minorly disputed, is that uh, this seems to be a false start on account of Moses and Aaron. So in keeping with the theme of the night, they start off with a false start. Um, If you glance back at chapter 3, verse 18, you will notice that God gave them very specific instructions as to how they were to approach Pharaoh. 3.18 says this, and we'll pick it up toward the middle of the verse. They're supposed to say, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Well, in their initial attempt, Moses and Aaron seem a bit hasty and brazen, and they make demands of Pharaoh. So rather than the slightly diplomatic terms uh, that God sets forward in the initial convey of the instructions, they march into Pharaoh's presence with imperatives. Uh, First of all, they identify the Lord as the Lord of Israel. God had told them to identify himself as the God of the Hebrews. Uh, The term Hebrew is a term that Pharaoh was more likely to understand because he's already used that term prior in the book of Exodus. Remember the account where he told the Hebrew midwives to actually kill the male-born children. So he related to his slaves as the Hebrews, and they use uh, the name of the people given to Jacob, their patriarchal father. They use a term that Pharaoh was not necessarily familiar with. Let's see how that goes when you march into the you know, talk to the superpower of the world at that time and you start speaking over his head using words that he's not familiar with. That doesn't make a man feel good like he's out of control. And then they make demands. The Lord demands that you let his people go. So it seems as though they didn't follow instructions quite exactly in what God had told them to do. And I think that's borne out when you glance down at verse three. After the initial rebuttal from Pharaoh, they change their tact and they say, Uh, very closely what God had instructed them to say in the first place. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness. So it's a bit of a false start on their part, I think, because they don't carefully follow the instructions that the Lord had given them. And it seems as though perhaps they make the the situation uh, more complicated unnecessarily and they bring more opposition uh, that they could have perhaps avoided. Now, that's not to say that Pharaoh would have been compliant, that he would have agreed to the terms at the initial attempt. God had clearly warned them that Pharaoh was going to have a hard heart. In fact, the Lord God was going to harden his heart so that he could get great glory over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. That Pharaoh was going to... um, need to experience the strong hand of Yahweh before he released the people to go sacrifice to the Lord. So it's not as though this would have changed everything. But you do wonder as you follow the story if they, they brought some undue consequences into the circumstance. I think there's some application there for us. Um, 
when we encounter opposition for what we think is obedience, sometimes things go poorly for us because we don't actually pay close attention to the details of God's instruction. You know, maybe we're a bit haphazard in what we do or say. We have an impression of what we think is the will of the Lord in a particular circumstance, but we're not actually paying close attention to his instructions in the book. And we bring unnecessary consequences into our lives as a result. So that's, uh, that's part of the first lesson for us. Pay close attention to detail. And now before we plow on, uh, we need to take note of an important structural marker. We need to understand the conflict that rages um, between the opposing parties in this narrative. Uh, The conflict clashes in this scene, not simply between Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron, or Pharaoh and the people of Israel. This is a conflict between Yahweh, the true and living God, and the gods of Egypt. As I said before, this is a clash between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The serpent, that ancient foe, the Lord's arch enemy, is trying to snuff out the good plan of God to bring redemption to humanity through Abraham. And Pharaoh stands in the place of the serpent. If we were going to put a label on this chapter, this scene in the story, I think we could call it one God's word versus another. See, Pharaoh was seen to be a representative of the Egyptian gods ruling over the land of Egypt. And there's a clash here between the word of Yahweh, the creator and covenant-keeping God, and the word of Pharaoh. You see the way the chapter begins. Uh, Moses makes their initial demand, thus says the Lord, the true and living God. And then if you glance down at verse 10, after Pharaoh gives his edict, it reads, well, thus says Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh shows his true colors that he is by no means going to subject himself to the word of the Lord. And really, in this cosmic conflict, Pharaoh is the one to make the first move. This is one of those verses that kind of sends chills up and down your spines. You sort of want to scoot over to leave room for the lightning strike. Look at verse number two. You probably saw it coming. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And let Israel go, I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh throws down the gauntlet. And you could almost say that the story of Exodus is the story of what's set in motion in this verse. Before too long, Pharaoh is going to learn more about Yahweh than he cares to know as God brings his crushing power against the gods of Egypt and the representative figurehead, Pharaoh. So we should expect that Yahweh is about to act decisively for his glory and for the sake of his people. So that's the first lesson. Follow instructions carefully. Here's the second lesson. When God asks us to make bricks without straw, expect opposition. It's very simple. It's not comfortable, but it's simple. Expect opposition. Uh, And this covers verses 5 through 14. Uh, you will notice that the darkness fights back. So primarily, this chapter strongly emphasizes Pharaoh's affliction of the Israelites. As if their burdens were not heavy enough. That's something that's been emphasized in the story so far. They are being crushed under the weight of oppression, slavery, 
affliction, pain, toil, agony. They are truly in bondage and they have cried out to the Lord. And as if their burdens weren't heavy, um, too heavy to bear, Pharaoh significantly intensifies their workload. This is what the passage stresses. You, you almost feel guilty making armchair comments about it in this kind of a setting because he crushes these people under the weight of their slavery. So part of their slave labor consists of making bricks. And as you noticed in the storyline, before straw for bricks was supplied, but now Pharaoh orders no straw be given, yet the daily quota of bricks remains the same. So the people are forced to gather stubble for straw and try to scrape together enough raw material to make quota. And what becomes plain is this demand, this requirement is absolutely impossible. There is no way to achieve what is demanded of them. Uh, the stubble, what was, what remained from the harvest, the small stock between where the sickle harvested the crops and the soil, they're supposed to gather that for the straw they need to make bricks, to meet daily quota. This is literally an, an impossibility. There's not enough time in a day. There's not enough material to scrape together what they need. There's no way they can achieve this end. Give it your best try, but it's just not going to happen. So in Pharaoh's mind, forced labor kept them in check before. Uh, you just got to love this. The more Abraham's family is oppressed, the more they multiply like rabbits and fill the land. And that's part of the scope of the entire redemptive story. The more they're oppressed, the more God blesses them and they multiply and they fill the land. This is what caused Pharaoh uh, to incite this slave labor in the beginning. I'll control them by making slaves of them. So he thinks, well, they're idle, they're lazy. I'll just turn up the heat. Slave labor worked before, it'll work again. We'll keep the people of Israel, the Hebrews, under control. So keep in mind that when we obey God, we will encounter opposition the darkness will fight back. And for whatever reason, sometimes we're surprised by that. And I guess that that's the whole problem there, isn't it? But we need to remember that we're actually living in enemy territory. The devil is the God of this age, and he has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And he has a real true power and authority in this sphere. He's actually been given a domain in which he rules, and the forces of darkness are strong. And there are times when we're going to take hits and it's actually going to hurt. It's really going to cost us something to be faithful to the one true God and to walk in obedience to his will. And this is something that, um, that we should be prepared for, that they should have been prepared for, because it's something God's been preparing us for all along through his very good word. The seed of the woman will be attacked by the seed of the, by the, I'm going to get that wrong. The seed of the woman will be attacked by the seed of the serpent, but the seed of the woman will ultimately win victory in the Lord. So expect the darkness to fight back. But then as we encounter opposition while we walk in obedience to God, we can see the good hand of God in the most difficult circumstances. And this is where there's overlap with Pastor Jacob's message this morning. See the good hand of God in your life, in your circumstances, even where you bear, even when, especially when 
you bear heavy burdens and you feel like you're going to be swamped, overwhelmed, and crushed under the weight of those burdens. Look at chapter 5, verse 5. This is something we alluded to already. But we see here a subtle nod to the promise-keeping God and his work. There's a slight admission from Pharaoh in this verse. Look, the people of the land are now many. And if we've been following the story so far, we should register in our minds that because that's only due to the faithfulness of God, that God had promised he was going to make Abraham a great nation in all circumstances. And the promise marches forward, no matter the opposition uh, that's in play. So we can see the good hand of God. And again, uh, this is something that Pastor Jacob very helpfully alluded to, but you can see the good hand of God in your life all the provision, all of the care that he truly is sustaining you, providing for you, supplying exactly what you need, when you need it as his child. And though often the way ahead is dark, you know, we lose sight of the path. We can't see far. We trust in the good hand of God to sustain, to provide for us each day, to carry us when needed. And he will do it just as he promised. And uh, the, the final part of this is to recognize that the darkness will scorn the word of the Lord. Again, we're going to meet opposition. The darkness will fight back. And more specifically, the darkness will scorn the word of the Lord. Again, as we look at this story, we can't miss the deeper layers of the plot tension. Look at verse 10 of chapter 5. Tellingly, Pharaoh warns them, Pay no attention to lying words. Pay no attention to false words. So the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord is, let my people go that they may serve me, that they may offer sacrifices in the wilderness to the true and living God, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Pharaoh interprets those as lying words. These are words of false hope. These are deceptive words. Yahweh isn't the God of the Hebrews. I am. And they're under my thumb. They're my slaves. They're my servants. And he warns, pay no attention to the lying words of the Lord. But again, for keeping in mind the overarching story, we have to hear the hiss of the serpent in that, right? That's exactly what the serpent said to Eve in the garden. His strategy was to get her to doubt the words of her good creator, the one true God. He convinced her to believe that the words of the Lord are lies, to pay no heed, to rebel against God's authority by denying his good word. He said, did God really say you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? He cast doubt, he cast dispersions on the character of God conveyed in the word. And then he told flat out lies. God knows in the day that you eat it, you'll be like God, discerning good and evil yourself. Right? So we ought to know the devil's schemes in our lives. He hasn't changed his approach. He takes the same tack. Every time he shoots his flaming darts at you, he uses the same scheme, distorting, twisting the word of the Lord, trying to plant doubt in your heart and mind against the goodness of God who has provided everything that you need and will sustain you at all times. 
This is his attack on the people of Israel as they're crushed under their burdens. Here's lesson number three. So that was lesson number two. Expect opposition. Follow instructions. Expect opposition. Hold fast under pressure. It's lesson number three. And it covers verses 15 to 21. Hold fast under pressure. And again, you feel guilty making comments like this, not being the one beaten for not making bricks. But we can see the goodness and the grace of God, even in the darkest of times. Now, there's an ironic statement from the foreman of the people of Israel. When they gain a hearing with Pharaoh, they appear before him to make their complaint. Notice in verses 15 and 16, three times in the span of two verses, they call themselves servants of Pharaoh. Your servants, your servants, your servants. Now, this begs a question. They're Israelites, aren't they? They're the family of Abraham, the the people of the maker of heaven and earth, the people of the one true God, the people whom God will take for himself and plant in the new Eden, the place of Canaan, where he will cause his name to dwell in Jerusalem, in the temple. These are the people of the true and living God, the inheritance of Yahweh himself, the most blessed people on earth, yet under pressure, Their knees are about to buckle, and they're acquiescing to Pharaoh, calling themselves his servants, people who are under his authority, crushed under their despair and their hopelessness. And considering what they've been through, you can hardly blame them, but it does seem like they're losing their nerve. And there's a lesson here for us. When you get the fight knocked out of you, You're tempted to succumb to the powers of darkness. But remember who you are. In the onslaught of the darkness, remember, you're a son or a daughter of God Most High. You're an heir with Christ. You're actually seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And one day he will crush all opposition under his feet. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So even if it looks like in the short run that you're on the losing team, friend, we know that's not the end of the story. You're people of the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. Really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how Satan rears his ugly head. It doesn't matter if he flails before the time when he's cast into the abyss and the lake of fire. He's doomed to destruction and eternal death, shut out from the presence of the Lord. And you will inherit a new creation and stand in the light of the sun. Don't ever forget who you are in Christ. And then as the pressure intensifies, shouldn't surprise us, but the darkness flexes its power. So predictably, Pharaoh is unyielding. You know, the foremans make their appeal. This task is impossible. And in a really polite way, they say, it's actually your fault. It's not our fault that we can't make quota each day. But he doubles down and he says, you are lazy. You are idle. Go back to your work. The darkness is unyielding, and the foremen of the sons of Israel recognize that they are in dire straits. They're in trouble. Now, this is, this is definitely a motor, moment of leadership crisis. Can you imagine being Moses and being Aaron and hitting this all-time low? I think there is a little signal in the text that Moses goes from being judge and deliverer to the accused. It's actually a fascinating interplay that I think weaves through the book of Exodus, through um, through the Torah, 
and it's something we should pick up on. So Moses actually had a prior false start before this incident. You remember after, well, being raised in Pharaoh's household, one day he went to look on the burdens and the afflictions of his fellow Hebrews, and he saw an Egyptian oppressing and beating one of his own people, a Hebrew. So you remember, he retaliates. He kills the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. The next day he goes out and he sees two fellow Hebrews bickering with one another, one abusing the other. He says, you're brothers, you need to get along. And the, the oppressor shoves him off and says, well, who made you prince and judge over us? And the story of Exodus is actually the ironic story of how the one true God was going to make Moses the judge and the savior of his people, Israel. But in this passage, Moses isn't the judge, he's actually the accused. They say, the Lord judge between you and us because you've made us a stench to Pharaoh and you've put a sword in his hand to kill us, right? So they're putting all the blame on Moses. You took action and now we are crushed and oppressed, hopeless and helpless, the Lord judge. Can you imagine the bitter despair, um, the utter hopelessness that Moses must have felt in his soul? And that reflects in his plea to God. So third lesson was hold fast under pressure. We're still, in, we're doing good here, guys, right? Third lesson was hold fast under pressure. The fourth lesson is lament while trusting the promises of God. Lament while trusting the promises of God. What do you, what do you do when God asks you to make bricks without straw? Lament while trusting the promises of God. And this covers the fourth and the final section, verses 22 through 6-1. I think this is the first sub-lesson we need to learn in this regard. Remember, when you're weak, then you're strong. Right? We know that's how we're actually supposed to live the Christian life. That that is the way in and it's the way forward and everything in between. All we can do is trust in our God to carry us, to provide everything that we need each day like little children. We are told over and over again in Scripture, when you're weak, when you're vulnerable and you're helpless and you cast yourself exclusively on the mercy of God, that's when you're strong. That's when God shows himself mighty, mighty to save, good, great, and glorious. So Moses turns to God in helplessness and he cries out to the Lord for rescue. He laments the harm inflicted on God's people. He questions his commission as God's servants. He feels deeply responsible for the affliction of the Israelites. Um, I do think we need to acknowledge that there is a rightful place for lament in the Christian life. Um, Often, we feel a significant gap between the promises of God and our daily experience. And I think that should germinate lament in our hearts. We should cry out to God in prayer, please be faithful to your promises. You have made promises that seem so far from my daily experience, seem so far from my plight and my suffering. Please hear my cry for mercy. Attend to me. Answer my plea. I need you to sustain me, to give me daily grace. The scripture is filled with prayers of lament, especially in the Psalms. You can go back, listen to an excellent sermon about the lament Psalms from Pastor Ben back in the summer. 
This ought to be a part of our daily Christian experience. Being a Christian is not just about being buoyant and happy-go-lucky and everything is charming each day. Of course, we are sustained by the joy of the Lord, so I'm not decrying that. But there is a rightful place among the people of God for prayers of lament because we live in a broken and sin-cursed world. Please, God, remember, keep your promise. We need your sustaining grace and your presence. I don't know if Moses goes too far in this prayer. I don't necessarily think so. I don't think he's necessarily accusatory of the Lord, but he's broken and he's crushed under the circumstances. He's at rock bottom and he turns it into prayer, crying out for help and affliction. And that's exactly what we do. And again, I just make the comment that if he remembered in this moment Israelite history, then he should sense that God is about to do something in amazing and decisive. God is about to receive great glory over Pharaoh and the pagan gods of Egypt. He's actually drawing Pharaoh into his trap. If you mess with Abraham, then you mess with Abraham's God, who is no localized territorial deity. As Andrew Peterson says, he's the one who spoke the world. He's the maker of heaven and earth. God promised that anyone who touches Abraham is actually messing with him. So Moses should expect the victory of God as he moves forward. And here's the final part of the last lesson. Resolve to trust the word of the Lord. God graciously, when Moses hits rock bottom, he cries out in despair and depression. God graciously reassures him of his promise. He had said that it would require a strong hand for Moses to drive out, excuse me, a strong hand for Pharaoh to drive out the people of Israel. He had already explained this. So he reassures that in time, this will come to pass, that he's going to strike Israel, he's going to strike Egypt with a strong hand, with the plagues, that he's going to win victory over the gods of Egypt. And then Pharaoh will drive the people out. He promises the full and the final exodus. So in summary, what do we do when God asks us to make bricks without straw? It's simply this. We trust God's word through times of woe. That's what we do. Those are our marching orders. Trust God's word through times of woe. From our vantage point, incursions like this appear to be setbacks. But from God's vantage point, more importantly, these circumstances are an integral part of his plan to bring himself maximum glory and throw down the powers of darkness. So, little children, take heart. These are lessons that Job and Joseph and even Jesus learned firsthand. Obedience to the good word of God often leads us in times of oppression. And in those times, we trust God's word through times of woe. Let's pray for God's help. God, so many of your children are crushed under heavy burdens. Burdens that left to themselves are too difficult to bear. We are so thankful that you are our father. That you promised you will carry us when needed. That you will sustain. That you will grant relief. That you will strengthen, confirm, and establish your people. So please, feed us with your word. Please cause these truths to take deep root in our hearts and lives. 
so that we trust you in times of darkness, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, so that you receive maximum glory in this world and your name is exalted. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.